Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You too can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited, conservation for a continent. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. The Standard Sportsman back again for another episode. We appreciate you guys listening and tuning in. We've had some some really cool episodes here lately and, and seem to keep generating Good ideas. Of course, it's easy when duck season's on your mind because it's uh, it's just right around the corner. So we think we got another cool topic again today um, that that we've mentioned in some previous episodes. You know, as a as a future episode. So we've we've circled back around. Thought it'd be worth discussing this for an hour or so. But uh, we're going to talk about whether you know the state of Arkansas is in need. Of, of some outfitter reform. Um, this is a an industry, obviously, Kaysen is involved in as a, as an outfitter, and and I do want to make it clear, I guess, that that we're not covering this episode to to do do uh, damage to anyone's business, and it's not to promote promote uh, Kaysen's business because I I don't think he needs any help uh, getting clients, but um, but yeah, so Kaysen, what? To, you know, you kind of brought this up. You you kind of see a lot of things and hear a lot of things being in that business. And I and I've experienced a few and and heard a few and have lots of lots of friends that run some outfitters across the state. But uh, why did why did you think we uh, we needed to cover this topic? You know, it's interesting. We get phone calls um, from potential clients, people looking to book a hunt, and we typically book up about a year in advance, so we have a waiting list. And invariably, the first question I get you know, when I tell someone that we're booked up is, man, do you have someone you would recommend? And I try to explain to them, and this is just my opinion, this may hurt some feelings, but if you're, if you're coming to Arkansas to book a hunt and you don't know anything about anybody, there's a very high chance that you're going to have a bad experience. I'd be scared to put a percentage on that, but there's a lot of people who, who come on their dream hunt and leave disappointed. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, it makes it makes me look bad. It makes everybody in the outfitter business look bad. You know, that's we, we should strive to be better. You know, we are selling an experience. That's the part that we can control. And you hear these horror stories of, you know, meeting a guide somewhere at a parking lot, gas station, whatever. Guide shows up late. You just, I mean, just terrible stories of somebody who who saved up, who had high expectations, who thought. Hey, my trip, and it's not just Arkansas. It it happens in a lot of places. Now we're gonna, I'm gonna come at it obviously from an Arkansas perspective because that's where we are. But you know, they, they they go on these these dream hunts, these trips, and 
they leave with a bad taste in their mouth. And that's not good for the future of our sport or our business. Yeah. And it's not good for the brand of Arkansas. I mean, we've got, Mm -mm. we've only got so many things we can hang our hat on. Um, (laughs) You know, if you think about it and and most Southern states are this way, but uh, whatever your thing is uh, and duck hunting is definitely one of our things as, as a, as a state, um, you definitely don't want to tarnish that uh, reputation or that ability because, you know, the, the, the people traveling to the state is huge, huge for these uh, these smaller communities in, in East Arkansas. Uh, I mean, it, it makes or breaks some people's year, um, you know, whether whether their farming operation went went well or not or 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 whatever they whatever they do for a living. But uh, this is this is a big swing for for a lot of them. And, and to think, uh, you know, you got a you got a contingency out there dragging that down to to where people, you know, you see it, you see it on social media. Uh, you hear about it anecdotally that, uh, people will say, Oh, you know, I've, I've been to Arkansas. I'm never going there again. I'll never, I'll never go back there, uh, and pay for a hunt and, and go with an outfitter. Cause it's, you know, I got ripped off or, or this or that. And, and not all that to me, I mean, of course, a lot of it falls on the, on the outfitters shoulders because they know whether they're running a, a legit business or not, uh, and, and truly offer yeah. what they, what they put online as far as, I mean, do they, do you really have timber hunting or are you kind of standing in a tree line on the edge of a rice field and calling that timber hunting? Um, because obviously people, you know, want to experience true green timber duck hunting. Um, that's part of what the appeal is for Arkansas, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of these kids advertise it, but they don't have it. Uh, they don't have access to it. And of course, when you show up, they tell you, Oh man, the ducks aren't using our woods right now. So we're going to go get in this pit, um, out in the middle of this rice field. And, and that's what, that's our best opportunity. Knowing full well, they don't have any timber to hunt anyway. Um, it's just put on there to, for the allure. But, um, but like I said, part of it falls in the outfitter, uh, definitely. But I think part of it falls on the, the person coming, not doing adequate research either. Um, because you got to vet. You got to really got to vet these guys and and that can be hard to do. Uh, you can ask for references, but that might be their cousin or their, you know, their brother or something <laughs> answering the phone, giving them a five-star review. But um, the Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Sitka Gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex. And over the last 50 years, Gore-Tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt-sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sika Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper, vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live frozen birds 
let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed. But yeah, I thought we'd talk a little bit first about the history of, of where this all started because, um, you know, it's a business uh, and uh, not very many, not very many people, it's their primary thing they do. Like, for example, you you have a farming operation and an outfitter, um, for example. Uh, a lot of guys are outfitters in the winter and they do something else in, in the, uh, you know, in the off season. So not a lot of people are, are around the clock. Uh, 365 just doing a duck guide operation to make a living so um it was it was a supplemental income thing back in the day which which grew and, and we've talked about it on some previous episodes really grew after world war ii um and you had guys but most of those guys were uh, offering duck hunting because on the ground that they owned uh, i i don't think there was a lot of outfitters leasing ground and and uh, doing stuff on other people's property, you, you you had the property, you had the ducks, and you didn't have anything to do during the winter. Um, most people, mm -hmm. like your grandfather, were, they were farmers. Um, and so, obviously, the farming operation slows down. I got a lot of ducks on my property. I'll start taking people. And that's kind of how it started. Uh, but it's evolved into a whole other thing now. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, it was a for a lot of landowners, a way to, to subsidize the property that they owned. Um, it just, it, it, it filled a niche, you know, like you said, they had time, they had, had the birds and it just worked for them. But then you, you know, you kind of flash, flash forward there and, and you get into, you know, guiding on public. And then you get even further into say the, the nineties where everybody with a four wheeler and a dozen decoys was a duck guy. Um, I don't know really, when to pinpoint the the time in history when it became fashionable to be a duck guide, but there was definitely a, a spot where everyone was like, Hey, this is cool. And I look really cool doing it. And it exploded in popularity. Um, and social media has just kind of perpetuated that trend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can remember, and I think you saw the, the photos I posted the other day on my uh, Grand Prairie Instagram account of the, of Max. And, and not the mm -hmm. early day, not the, not when it was on Main Street, originally a hardware store. And then he started selling sporting goods uh, out of there. But the one that was on 79, I can remember going in there as a kid. And that was, that was kind of a hub of activity for, for the guides. Uh, that's where they would tell people to meet them. And so you would see these guys and this, keep in mind, this is in the late seventies, early eighties, well, pretty much all through the eighties. Um, and even some. Uh, up until they built a new store, but, you know, being a kid going there with my dad and, um, you know, you'd see, and you could, you could, even as a kid, you could pick out who the, the guides were, you know, they come in with lanyards full of bands, uh, kind of dressed, you know, they had the look, uh, and then you could tell the clients cause they, they would have a different look. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you kind of like thought those guys were the coolest dudes on the planet. Mm -hmm. Um, cause, cause, you know, they, they had this aura about them, uh, and they would, they would typically meet. that was Max was a, was definitely a meeting place for, for a lot of those guides to connect with their clients. So, uh, I can see why, you know, that probably that image that they, those guys created, uh, or they were known as, 
you know, they were known quantities. There were definitely some guides. You know, this is long before social media. There were guides that were you knew when they walked in the restaurant in town or or when they you saw them at the gas station and you're like, oh, that's that's so and so. Um, there were definitely some guys that carried that mystique with them. But uh, I think that's probably what made people want to one uh, people figured out they'd make a little money at it. Two, uh, it, it, they they threw off this image, and so people wanted to be like them, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think you you probably had that same scene in a number of communities across the state. I know a local you know hub there in Brinkley was a, a hotel there in town. Everyone met there at the coffee shop. You know, it was just, and that was kind of ground zero for a lot of the public land up here too. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, you 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 would walk in there. People from out of state, people that had a lease, you know, maybe that didn't didn't own land or maybe they did, but they they grew up or maybe they were young kids. But they saw these guys and they looked up to them and then it just kind of it morphed, you know. Um, and I don't, I don't know that it morphed into something positive either. I mean, that, and I guess I ought to be careful. I don't want everyone to think that we're just going to dog outfitters this entire episode. That's that's not the case. There's some really good people out there who are doing a good job sharing the, the experience. And then people ask me that sometimes like, man, why do you, why do you do it? Well, it's kind of twofold. It's part of our history here. You know, we've done it for 70 years. I feel like it's something I need to do to keep up what my father and grandfather did. So it's not all a monetary gain. And then the flip side of it, you know, I love hunting with my kids. I love taking them. And it's kind of the same thing. We get clients that only come out once a year. We get a lot of people that have been on go on their first hunt or their first hunt in the timber every year. I'm getting to share something with them that, that means so much to me. So it's just fun to watch them do it. I mean, you've been around. I know you you like to hunt, you like to kill, but I know you and I are getting to the age where it's like, man, I don't have to kill anymore. Like just just going and just seeing is enough for me. So when I get to take them and introduce them to that or share that with them. That's what it's all about. So I say all of that just to say that there are some really good guides and outfitters out there. So this is not aimed at everybody. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. I've, and I'm the same. I've got a lot of, a lot of good buddies that are in the business and, and uh, don't want this to come across as a blanket statement, but uh, you know, just like we talked about in the, in the speckle belly episode we did recently, I think the, the you know, the ones I'm, friends with i think they would be in support of some of the things we're going to talk about today because uh, it, it reflects on them uh, you know we mentioned a minute ago it reflects on the state of arkansas and you mentioned it reflects on you it does it, it reflects on the the you know the outfitter uh, industry uh, because enough people get turned off and stop coming here uh, that's why we see the kind of the cyclical um roster of guides and and stuff that are available because um it's it, you know some of them can't sustain and stay in business because they you know uh, just operate a a uh a less than uh less than honest operation but right. they they cost you the the people that are in it for the long haul or in it the long game and can sustain it uh, they cost you a little bit reputation wise and it makes you almost have to work double time to to make up for somebody's impression, you know, they gave Arkansas a chance, had a terrible experience. They're giving it a second chance and they come to hunt with you or they come to hunt with a, one of these other reputable outfitters. And it's almost like you got to work double hard to make up ground for the, for the ground lost by some dude that was, you know, in the outfitter game that was completely dishonest and unethical or 
yeah. jerk or whatever, whatever. There's all right. kinds of reasons you can turn somebody off, but, uh, well, but yeah. How many times have you, have you seen the comment on, on Facebook or Instagram, you know, somebody would spout off, man, I would never hire a guy. I'm, I'm not paying someone else to take me hunting. Like, well, you gotta, you kind of have to change how you look at it. It's, it's not just that you're an inferior hunter and you're taking, you're hiring someone to take you hunting. Like we all, we personally offer so much more than just the hunt, man. It's the atmosphere, the food, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, so, but yeah, you, you kind of have to combat or you have to fight those, that sentiment, you know, that I would never hire a guide. Like it's some bad thing that you're, you don't know how to duck hunt, so you hire a guy. No, and the majority of our clients are from out of town. They don't have the time to come invest in a lease and scout and do all those things. They want to come enjoy their time when they can get here and not spend the rest of the year trying to set it all up. So, but yeah, I mean, the the, the bad reputation, the bad experiences just fuel that public perception of guides. And it's, it's a tough thing to overcome sometimes. It really is because it, it 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 creates that um, just that sour taste and and uh, it, you know you think about what uh, you know what has gone on because you you mentioned it earlier you know we Arkansas used to allow guiding on on the wildlife management areas um, which which caused all kinds of issues enough to the point where they they had to ban them and and that was questionable anyway you know you allow somebody to go in there and, and and charge a per head fee to take somebody hunting, but, you know, navigating that place and, and, uh, knowing how to, you know, work ducks in the timber and all that, that requires some, I mean, that probably requires somebody with a little expertise and a little knowledge. Um, and that, and that probably with the guides not there now, um, you you've kind of put people in a position that they got to, they have to take themselves and that may mm-hmm. be causing some of the, or I, I shouldn't say maybe it is causing some of the issues on our wildlife management areas because you have people that want to experience green timber duck hunting, but you know, that no better way to say it. They don't know what they're doing. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, they're wandering the woods all morning, disturbing ducks, disturbing hunters. Nobody can work any ducks because there's boats roaming around. Mm-hmm. People get lost, um, you know, take wrong turns, um, you know, all that. So, uh, but it, to me, I think the Game and Fish was correct in in not allowing um, guiding on public ground. And most states don't on their, and of course you can on the federal ground. Now, that's not to say it doesn't happen. Um, because I know it does, it's, it's done, um, lots of shady ways. So I would, I would, uh, warn anybody <laughs> that, that it, if, if you hire somebody that's an outfitter and they tell you that, that you're going to meet at the ramp at upper value or at Biomeda, um, I'd be a little concerned about who you're, uh, mm-hmm. who you're doing business with and, and, uh, because that yeah. is completely against the law. Oh, yeah, or if they tell you to uh to you know tell the game more than the are friends, you know I'm not guiding you. That's a huge yeah. red flag. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or you you didn't pay for the duck hunt. You actually bought right. a fish fishing trip. Uh, or you're just but, paying for the lodging. Yeah, or the lodging, <laughs> but, the, but the duck hunt was free. Um, and so that's where the wildlife officers run into to an issue because yeah. it's really hard to prove. But um, I mean it's obvious, but can you prove it and make it stand up? Right. That's, that's the right. hard part. But, uh, 
you know, I think anybody that's hiring a guy like that, um, they probably need to not be welcome back here either. Um, you know, not that the, cause you, you know what, you know, what's going on. If you don't, I don't know, you should be out there walking around with a shotgun in your hands. Um, cause it's, uh, it's just not, you know, and, and there's people that break, break the law in every business that walks the planet, but, uh, not sure. to be Dudley do right. But, um, it's, it's again, getting back to your, you're tainting and ruining that experience for the people that try to do it right. Yeah. Well, so I think you opened the door right there for, for us to kind of talk about the reform that you and I have in mind. And we've, we've talked about this before and bounced ideas off each other, but I, I think the state of Arkansas needs to establish an outfitter license, something that they can, you know, not necessarily endorse an outfitter, but at least have a database where a potential duck hunter can go look and see, okay, this guy is on this list. He has his outfitter's license. And I think what that should entail from just from my perspective, you know, we have to have insurance. We have to pay taxes. We have to pay a tourism tax. Like there's a number of things that we have to do as a business to be on the up and up at a minimum. We should be requiring outfitters to do that. And you should have to pay for an outfitter's license. Now, we can discuss this a little bit, but I think it should be a tiered system. I think if you're a resident, an Arkansas resident, and you're a landowner, you should have the cheapest option of these outfitter licenses because you're already paying property tax. You already live here. Um, you know, I, I don't want to throw out there, but the, the amount of property tax we pay annually is pretty staggering compared to what most people spend on duck hunting. And that's just our property tax. Right. So I think from there, you know, you move up to a resident, non-landowner, and then you get into out-of-state. So if you're an out-of-state outfitter, if you're coming into Arkansas, if you're coming down from Canada chasing speculators, and then you're leasing land when you get here, you should have the most expensive option. And I think, and I think I've told you this, I think all of this money from outfitter license sales should get earmarked and it should be set aside to go into the rice program, you know, where the Arkansas Game of Fish is basically leasing these private land rice fields and allowing public access. So now we're taking revenue from people, you know, generating revenue in the state and we're applying it to add more access and more habitat. So now we're going to have more duck energy days. We're going to benefit the resource. We're going to allow public hunter more opportunity because we took this money and we reinvested it. And I think that's the start of how outfitter reform should be done. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I definitely like, like the tiered, uh, platform because you're right uh being a being a fellow landowner um, for duck hunting purposes i mean you're doing it for a farming operation we also have a farming operation it's much smaller and it's primarily for the benefit of the duck but uh but yeah i mean it, it owning ground is expensive um not only in purchasing but ongoing uh, efforts and taxes and everything else so that that lower tier makes sense i tell you a state that does it um that I think does it really well. And you find a lot of the states that offer big game have um, uh, an outfitter uh, license requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't see it as much in the waterfowling world, but some states are adopting it. I know that um, Illinois has it, has it now uh, for, and it's a non-resident and non-resident uh feet for an outfitter um i want to say it's it's like 500 dollars for a resident which if you're 
a non-resident guide in Arkansas, that's what your fee is. Um, yeah. a, a resident fee is a, a whole whopping $25 uh, mm-hmm. to be a guide, a guide license in Arkansas, which is just, which is crazy. But um, so if you're, if your outfitter is not buying that $25 license and telling you not to tell on him, you should know the caliber of person you're with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Red flag, big red flag. If, he can't, yeah. if he's not, if he's not forking up a whole $25 to be a legitimate guide recognized by the Arkansas Gaming Fish Commission, probably not the guy you need to be hiring but yeah you know but illinois i think they're non-resident is is like 1500 but uh getting back to colorado because they they haven't they ha- and i don't know you know i'm not and we've said it multiple times in the show neither one of us are, are are heavy regulation we need to just regulate the hell out of the sport because none no. of us want that but as we've mentioned numerous times as lee mentioned on one of our recent podcasts lee jost who we had on uh, we have, we as a duck hunter have s- struggled to police ourselves. So I think that's part of what's going on in, in, in some of the outfitter game, but, but Colorado requires, you got, you have to, you have to register as an outfitter. You have to register who the principals are of said outfitter. And then you have to register who your guides are. So who mm-hmm. works for who, because for example, in Arkansas now you just buy, so they know who gu- the guides are probably most of them because they buy the $25 license or they buy the $500 out-of-state license, but you don't know who they work for. Uh, you don't get any data on them. Uh, I know that, uh, but one of the states I looked at, you had to, um, you had to fill out a data sheet each day, who your clients were and then what they harvested. So you had this mm. uh, record book to, to, uh, to turn in. Um, so, you know, a lot of states are doing it different ways, but, um, but that they have in Colorado, they have an, a, a government office dedicated to this. Uh, it's called the office of outfitter registration. And that's where these guides um, have to have to register. They have to do uh, some level of continuing ed. Usually it's like first aid. Uh, they have to take an exam. What uh, a novel concept. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're protecting, they're protecting their resource. Yeah. Well, uh, well, the because, first aid thing is huge. I mean, imagine the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what's crazy is what's really crazy. And you start looking around at all these states and, and people doing different things because Texas, you don't have to even buy a guide license. Kansas, you don't have to buy a guide license. Anybody can be a guide with just a regular hunting license. So they have no right. ability to know anything that's going on. Anybody truly anybody can be an outfitter. Um, and so it's, it's just a free for all. Um, and, uh, Louisiana just now started requiring a guy license, which is crazy. If you think about it, um, all the, the, you know, it's sportsman's paradise. That's their, that's their, uh, mm-hmm. you know, their, their marketing tagline is sportsman's paradise. Cause they're hunting everything, uh, under the sun. Cause Louisiana has it. And, but they're just now getting to requiring a guide license, uh, for, for hunting. Now, What's interesting though with all these states, almost all of them require a fishing guide license. So that I mean, you know, I don't know, fish to me, in a lot of ways, that's kind of a almost like an endless resource. I mean, a lot of the game fish we chase. I mean, there's there's bazillions of them, um, and and don't require, you know, as much effort as waterfowl do to to, you know, breeding success and all these other things that we worry about, but. Uh, but these states are really strict about fishing, but hunting is just whoever wants to give them hell, which is kind of crazy to me. 
It is. And I wonder if on the fishing side, if that's based on operating a boat with customers in the boat. I mean, you know, like the Coast Guard license, all those yep. things. So Louise, obviously yeah. Louisiana is familiar with that. It's amazing. A lot of that happens in some of these same, you know, marshes down on the coast. It's it's wild that they're just now starting to do some of that on the waterfowl side. Um, but it's, I don't know. I think it's an area that needs to be addressed. And you, you talked on it or touched on it a little bit uh, in Colorado when you mentioned that they have a, you know, a, they assign guides or they know what guide works for what outfitter. I think here in Arkansas, I think you should put a limit on the number of guides you can have under an outfitter's license because an unintended consequence here is you're going to have, you know, 10 or 15 guides go in together and split an outfitter's license and they're okay. Didn't really cost them anything. Mm-hmm. I think you've got to be mm-hmm. a little bit careful about that. Um, That's a good idea. You've got to be, I guess, a little careful as well because you're going to have some some guides that maybe work for different outfitters. So, I don't know how you fix that issue. Surely smarter minds will prevail there, but but I think you need to be leery of how how it gets done because you're gonna have people find loopholes and, and abuse it, you know. And that's hypothetically if this thing ever happens. Um, but I, I think we owe it to our customers, we owe it to the people that are coming to the state. I I think the state of Arkansas owes it to potential hunters to kind of validate some of this stuff and, and give people an avenue to to find a reputable outfitter and not you clearly you're going to have people that do it and don't sign up. That's going to happen. Same as we have guides that are guiding right now, but, but I don't think like I've, I, we have guides that are from out of state. I mean, we're not far from, you know, two different state lines right here. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think the cost should fall on them to come guide for me. It's my business. You know, I mean, charging them several hundred dollars to come guide is, I don't think that's the right approach. I understand the the concept there because right now they get to behave as an outfitter. They could come here as an outfitter, but they're, they're not, they're a guide for me. So I think with the outfitter system, you kind of lift some of that burden on these guys. And, you know, it takes a number of guides for us to get through the year. You know, most, all of our guides are older. They're not 25 years old and able to hunt 60 days out of the year. You know, they've got families, they've got jobs. So, we have a number of different guys, you know, that may only work a handful of days a year or may only come in for specific clients. So to, to pay, what would you say it was $450 this year? Is that right? 500 for a non-resident guide okay, license. Yeah. That's kind of insane to come in and, and guide 10 days out of the season and have to pay $500 for it. Um, but I get it with, with the model that we have, it's kind of the only option, but I, I just think we should, we should really consider that and then potentially fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, uh, another interesting one that just came to me and I think it, I think it's actually Montana that requires the, the continuing ed with first aid and the exam, but, but Montana also requires before you can be an outfitter, you have to have three years experience as a guide. And then Mm -hmm. They also had this phrasing in there, which I didn't I didn't have enough time to to dig into what they meant, but you also have to have 120 days of very verified experience as a guide. So I don't I don't know what verified experience, like they send a guy out to to monitor yeah. you or what, but <laughs> shadow um, you. <laughs> yeah, shadow you. But uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure what that means, but that's kind of interesting too, as a as a way to uh, you know, you just can't jump in this deal. Um you know, you almost have to, to prove yourself, um, that yeah. you're capable of, 
of of doing doing right, you know, safety yeah. wise, you know, uh, all those things. Your equipment is because you know we had the we had the unfortunate episode that happened in the White River where those guys drowned. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember when that was, but that that was a uh, I believe that was an outfitter. Uh, that was a paid for trip, and the boat began to sink sink, and the the guys were trapped in there. Uh, and not that could have been a total accident. I can't remember the details because it's been a little while. But but um, you know, if you're operating that kind of boat on that river, you probably need to have. And you, I, I don't know if you have to have a captain license. I don't know if, know enough about our boating laws. But just you thinking out loud about, about some of those things, because um, that you know, the White River when it, in the wintertime when it's up and rolling, that thing is that thing is some. My dad wouldn't take me when I was a kid. That's where uh that's where he hunted when i was younger uh, when most of that was still private ground and uh i didn't get to go because uh the river was was too swift and and too dangerous uh, so um you know I, and i'm assuming there's near run-ins on that river every duck season uh life mm-hmm. or death run-ins uh, has yeah. to be um so uh you know just just qualifying everybody to to be able to do that and 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 be the one that takes these people that 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 would not be able to do this on their own um you know i'm not sure i would uh, no more than i know about the white river now as an adult this many years later i don't know that i would do it on my own um you know just just on a whim i'm gonna go hunt the white river today right uh, and take off in there uh not knowing it like the back of my hand so um it's kind of just kind of interesting how other states handle it versus you know how we're handling it. How some other states aren't handling it at all because <laughs> it's just a, <laughs> do whatever you want, however you want, and it's caused a real issue. I've got some. I've got a friend in Kansas uh, that I talked to this morning uh, that has an outfitter, and and he's a he li- he's a Kansas resident, um, but you know theirs is a free for all, and his he doesn't know the number for sure, but he's 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 convinced they have as many outfitters in Kansas as we have in Arkansas. And then he's really? convinced. Yeah. And then he says it's just exploded. Um, the, the last, he said it started about 10 years ago. It really ramped up about five years ago. And then the last couple of years, it's just gone bananas. And yeah. then he's also convinced that it's half and half, half of those outfitters are resident and half of them are non-resident. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that comes back to some of the pressure we talked about with Lee, you know, people hunting multiple states, hunting more days out of the year. You get a lot of that with outfitters now, you know, that are running a, they've got a, a outfit in this state and they've got an outfit in this state mm-hmm. and they move back and forth, you know, um, and to, to go, uh, I'll say this too, uh, Arkansas is pretty well wide open. I mean, barring a, if you're a resident, barring a really nominal fee, you know, there's no, there's no restriction, no reform. It's just kind of a, dare I say a money grab, yeah. but there's no, you, they're, they're taking money to buy a guy's license, but they're not offering anything back to the the hunters that are coming to the state. They're not offering any sort of, Hey, or, the, or the resource has insurance. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so we do a similar thing. You mentioned, you know, kind of a, a trade system where, where people are learning the trade. We do that here. Um, and this is, you know, we're not talking about the white river. We're just talking about our farm you know, pretty well known for not using headlights in the morning. So you can't run out here and guide the first day. You you don't know where you're going. You don't know the roads. You can't drive like that. It takes a while to, to learn your way around. So we kind of apprentice and anyone that's hunted with us before, 
has likely been on a trip where there were two guides. So the second one is that's what he's doing. He's learning how to navigate, how to get there. And they're all great hunters and accomplished adults who, you know, can call the shot and do all those things, but there's more to it than just being a hunter. And I think that's what a lot of people don't, don't understand. It's not just, can you kill ducks? Yeah. That's the easiest part of the equation. Yeah. You've got to be able to control other people with firearms, keep them safe, keep yourself safe. There's just a lot to it. And I think it's, I think it's kind of insane that we have not forced this issue already. Uh, I mean, you think of the two things we've talked about here, insurance and, you know, first responder training, medical training. I mean, we should be doing this and it should be, it, it shouldn't take, we shouldn't have to have a conversation about it. I think it should just kind of be common sense reform that, that it should be doing, we should be doing it this way. I mean, maybe not every single guide, but maybe so. Maybe every guide under Outfitter should be certified in CPR. I don't think that's a huge ask, you know? No, no, not, not when you encounter, uh, you know, people from all different walks of life and health conditions and age and everything else. I mean, you would hate for that to, to fall upon your shoulders uh, and not be able to take care of somebody if, if something like that happened. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, that goes for regular duck clubs too. I mean, it's not, uh, it's happened. I, I know it's happened. I can think of one uh, immediately off the top of my head of a, of a and even a, he was a younger guy, a well-known family here in Little Rock, uh, had a son uh, tragically pass away from a heart attack at his duck camp um, a few years ago. So uh, it can happen at a regular, regular duck club too. But um, you know, that, I think you're right. I think that's that's part of the responsibility when you're hosting someone in that regard, uh, and they're and they're paying for that experience. That the, you know that experience should should give them a, a you know a, a little sigh of relief that somebody's going to be able to take care of them if, if something goes awry. Uh, heaven forbid that happens. But um, the Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now they've come out with a loadout 30 go box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hadn't rained in a while. It's a amazing product. Yeah. So I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switch from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. And it's great to, to use that 15 as an ammo box. So I've got all the kids ammo, gauge reducers, hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah. The Yeti Go box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas and leather bags and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com in their Birmingham, Alabama and Wilson, Arkansas stores and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. Kind of talk about 
if you can, because I'm not familiar with it. I mean, how do you, how do you handle, uh, you know, the compensation for your guides, um, the guys that work for you? I mean, is it tips only or is there, or, or and maybe that's something you don't want to talk about. You give away how you, <laughs> how you do things, but, but I've always no, no, wondered no, they, that if, if, if guys just work for tips or they, they're on some kind of, you know, no, they're, they're not like a deckhand. It's not solely tips. Now the, you know, gratuity, is much appreciated and goes a long way, but no, they're, they're getting paid a day rate to, to guide. Okay. Yep. That, I mean, that's how we do it. It's how we've done it forever. Um, I don't know how anybody else does it cause I've never really asked. So maybe I'm behind the times, but, uh, no, they're, they're getting paid, uh, for the day, you know, yeah. anyway. Um, yeah. cause unfortunately we've had some, you have some people that are very generous and they, they get invited back and occasionally you run into one, you're like, I'll tell a funny story. Um, I had a guy one time was guiding for me and he and I are friends long time ago, went to college together. And I mean, he busted his rear end for this group for a couple of days there, changed a flat tire for him in the parking lot. Just, you know, everything he could to be a nice hospitable guide. And uh, I think they tipped him like 20 bucks. I was like, dang, dude, that's, that stinks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, but you have, I don't know, you have some of those, but I guess. Oh, for sure. For sure. This, you know, much in the terms of, of outfitter reform, we we kind of, I'm sure other outfitters are the same way. You have a, maybe not a list of names, but you, you know, you know, you figure out who the bad seeds are and you don't do business with them anymore. Um, and I think a person coming to Arkansas should have uh, some sort of any state, not just Arkansas. You should be able to, to find a place that kind of gives you a list of people that are at least doing all the, the academic things correctly. Yeah. 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 Because I, I do see some of these guys do bounce around. Um, you know, they're, they're guiding for one operation for a season or a couple of seasons. And then you look up and you see them, you know, guiding for somebody else and, um, who knows what causes that? It could be that could be because the outfitter's operation was crabby. Could be could be because the outfitter ran him off. I mean, who who knows? Yeah. But um, yeah, I was just curious. That doesn't have anything to do with outfitter reform. I was just curious how those guys got paid. I definitely don't think we need to be policing how everybody handles their pay structure <laughs> for their guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm not advocating for that. That's for sure. But uh, but uh, one thing I did mention earlier too and I, and I think I would have a lot more respect might not be the right word but maybe it is I, I would I would have a lot more respect for these some of these operations if I saw that they were they were giving something back to the to the resource uh, and some of them do yeah. some of them own their own ground and they're and they're providing habitat and they're leaving their boards in after the season and you know, some of them are, I have no doubt, but there, but there's some, it is kill consume. And that is, that is it. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and they want that, they want, you know, got their hand out for that, that payment at the end of the deal. And then they're moving on to the next one. And then, uh, none of their, not one, not a single effort they make is for the, for the resource that's providing them this, this income. And that's, yeah, that really kind of rubs me the wrong way with with some of these and it and it's you can see right through it um, um pretty quick you can tell who's a 
a lot of times who's a contributor and who's not. Some you can't, some, some keep that to themselves and, and all that, which is, which is great. And, and I, I totally respect that too. But the ones, the, the ones that are the takers, uh, that's, that's another really, really poor look on the industry that, you know, you're just doing it for the money. And, and, uh, you know, I think, I think Lee's the one that mentioned it, you know, if there was only a hundred ducks left on the planet, they'd still try to kill 99 of them, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of deal. So, um, you know, it's just another way to look at it. Um, you'd sure like to see them give something back, uh, whether, you know, I don't know whether it's big sums of money or percentage of their their revenue i'm not i'm not saying that because some people may need every dime that they make off of that to to use it for whatever they they need it for but i i would suspect in most cases somehow some way they could find a way to to give a little something back um versus just being a take 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 that's where i think the outfitter deal would force that hand you know you're you're generating income off something that belongs to everybody. Now, obviously, as a landowner yourself and myself included, we invest very heavily into that resource. And that doesn't justify, you know, me being an outfitter, but I invest in it because without without the habitat, without me investing, there wouldn't be a resource to to enjoy. So I, I can see the the benefit and the reward firsthand. I think that a, a lot of these people that are leasing multiple fields across the state, multiple counties, you know, they're, they're driving up here cause it's got birds one day they're going down here, you know, and then a lot of them, a lot of them are hunting the same spot morning and afternoon, doubling down, you know, and we've got some stories of that, you know, they'll advertise that they hunt all these different places. And the truth of it is they've got one spot and they're running as many as they can a day through it, you know, and then they're abusing their neighbors next to them. Sometimes that's us because of the, the traffic they're generating. Um, so I, I think the outfitter system is going to force them to invest into the resource if it's done correctly, you know, um, and we need that. We need, we need more, we need more duck energy days. We need more habitat. We need more access. You know, we need it to be easier for someone to go hunt that doesn't own or doesn't lease. Um, and I wonder, you mentioned it a minute ago, kind of the the landowner versus the people leasing. I wonder how many of those, I wonder what the percentage would be. Would you say the majority of outfitters? I know it's just a guess. Would you think the majority of outfitters in the state own ground or do you think they're leasing? Hmm. I would, you know, just off the top of my head and, and not really doing obviously any sort of research, I would guess with the num- the grown, growing number of out-of-state outfitters that it would skew more towards leasing. I would think um, so pretty easily. These, yeah. yeah. These guys that have, uh, like you said, have these multi-state operations um, or pop their head into Arkansas for a little bit, um, you know, while the getting's good and, and all that, I would say it would definitely, I would think it skews towards leasing, uh, especially what? if you include the, the speckle belly uh, outfitter, because <laughs> uh, that's almost all day renting fields. Oh, yeah. And you mean uh, guys aren't killing specs on the public. N- no, they're not doing that. And they're, and they're not killing them <laughs> off the same farm all season either. That's uh, right. If, if they're, if they're, if that's their primary focus and they're, cause I know some, 
Uh, I've got a buddy that's kind of an outfitter there south of Stuttgart that that they hunt speckleberries in the afternoon, but it's not a relentless every day we're going out there and we're we're getting after them. And so they space it out. So you can if you do that, you can do that off the same farm. The problem is most of the guys that are in the speckleberry game aren't doing that. They're a lot of times double dipping, uh, one group in the morning, different group in the afternoon. Um, these guys feel like I talked to one yesterday um, out of the Almira area, which is a is a speckleberry hot zone um they feel like they have to tie fields up to keep someone else from hunting it so if it's one of their mm-hmm. better fields that they don't they don't lease it for the season you know they rent it for the day even if they know even if they see the geese have backed off of it and are not using it they feel like they got to rent it even though they know they're not going to hunt it to keep somebody else from showing up and hunting that field um you know the day after or two days after they've hunted it and and but maybe burned it up pretty good um, and so they're having to tie fields up, uh, and, and all that to, to keep someone else off of it. Cause these guys just, they just bounce around like a ping pong ball on where they find the geese and then, you know, knock on a door and, and ask for permission, which is what happens in Kansas and Oklahoma, uh, in some of these States that aren't as heavily, um, heavily, uh, you know, the ground's not heavily tied up with season long leases like arkansas is uh it's a totally right. different ball game in those states it's kind of like canada uh, you know where you just drive and drive and drive until you find them and then you find them go knock on a door and see if you can get permission and and so you know uh, th- these fields are these guys are feeling like they have to defend some of their turf or otherwise somebody else will come in there and, and shoot it out even worse than they've already done right um, now truth be told over the course of time that's not going to work um, that, that, the, they're either going to burn up the resource and that resource is going to push to somewhere else, or they're going to, they're going to run out of money trying to tie fields up that they're not even going to hunt, um, uh, and, and end up fading away and not being, not being in the game anymore. That's right. It's not sustainable. And that's, that's what happens with a lot of leases, even, even on the non guiding side of it. You know, you've got, let's say you've got a little club that comes together and you've got eight, 10, 12 guys that lease two fields. And then they feel like, well, my dues were $4,000 this year. I've got to get my money's worth out of it. So they're going to hunt it every opportunity they get. They're going to go in the afternoon. They're going to over pressure every bird that looks at it. Um, and I think yeah. it's just, it's in the example you gave, it's even worse. I mean, it just it more to a higher degree, I guess. Um, and that's what will happen there. They're going to keep paying for a field that they're not hunting. And then one day it's going to be, well, we might as well hunt it because we paid for it. So now the pressure is kind of maybe not right back where it was, but pretty close. Um, and I don't know. I don't think there's a way that, the, you know, outfitter reform reduces pressure or or maybe it does. Maybe maybe you weed out a lot of these, you know, fly by night rogue operations that that aren't willing to do the work to be a legitimate in, in the format that we kind of laid out there yeah well i mean those those guys come and go uh you know this you got you obviously have this block of long time long running outfitters y'all are one of them um you know that have this long consistent history of of you know doing things the right way the the fringe guys and and the outlaw guys they they come and go um you know they don't they don't stick around you know unless yeah. 
they figured a lot of way to, I don't know, they got some outlaw clients that like to <laughs> like to live on the edge or something. Cause I mean, there are people out there like that. And, you know, if we're going to kill yeah. ducks, I'll, I'll risk it. I'll risk going into public ground. I don't care. I'll risk this. I'll, you know, whatever it is, I'll risk right. hunting over bait. Um, I'll risk whatever. Cause I, I'm a, I'm a killer. I want to, if I go, I want to kill some stuff. Um, yeah. So, or, or they, or they don't know. I mean, it, you know, they may only see what they see on social media and they assume that that is hundred percent transparent and, and true, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, yeah. Look, we, you and I talked, I think last night I was sending you text messages about one of our neighbors and in that particular, that one particular field, I can't count how many different guide operations have worked on that field next to us in my lifetime. I mean, I'd have to think about it for a while. And someone asked me, I don't know, an, an operation or two ago, uh, you know, what, oh, you should buy it or, or what are you going to do? Or how does that, you know, how does that, does that make you mad? And I explained to them, like, no, because if it's not them, it'll just be someone else. And the story is the same. Every time someone picks it up, they lease that field and then they hunt on the property line. It's, you know, if oh, it's man. not this guy, it'll be some other guy next year and it will never change. That's the way it's been for 40 years. Um, and it's frustrating, you know, and you ask yourself, well, why are they hunting on the property line? Well, because they want to get as close to somebody else as they can. And that's the truth of it. I mean, we, yeah, we talked about the outfit who uh, I won't get into specifics because I don't want to disparage anyone, but came, came to Arkansas, stuck their flag out. You know, they're, they're guiding for this particular species. And if you see it on social media, man, they've got tons of birds. They're killing tons of birds. It looks great. You're going to come book a hunt. What you don't realize is that the only reason they hung their shingle out where they did is because they were next to someone else that had birds. And that's look, yeah. that's scouting. That's the name of the game. They don't, they don't belong to anybody. It's a public resource. Right. But, but there's a lot of other outfits that are like that. They, they, I think I mentioned on here one time we had a, a guide service. They don't hunt next to us, but they were videoing speculabilities over our fields and posting on social media that they had birds come book your hunt today. Yeah. Right. And called them out. And other people, there's somebody in Texas that called them out for it. And like, Hey, that looks like Byers farm. And they tried to reel it in and retract, you know, and apologize for it. And like, you're, you know, but if you, if you don't know, if your only depth of knowledge is what you see on social media, you're liable to go book a hunt and pay whatever their rate is to come on that hunt with these, you know, services, these outfitters. And that's no fault of the, of the person on social media, because there is no system to go see, is this person a legitimate outfitter? And both the ones that I've given you examples of, I think they would qualify and do all the things necessary to, to reach that criteria. So that wouldn't necessarily weed that out either. But yeah, I think having that, having that list, and having that database, it would be a lot easier to for clients, I guess, to share their experiences. It, I guess it would make us all a little more accountable. Maybe, yeah, hopefully, yeah. Well, yeah, and you would think you'd want to know who the people are in in this sport that is obviously not an endless resource. Um, who the, who it is. Uh, and, and, and be able to extract data from them. Cause you, I mean, I think you'd be curious about, you know, where they come. Now, obviously you could tell by license, but you don't, you don't know what those people do when they get here necessarily. You don't know that somebody come from South Carolina is hunting with an outfitter. They're hunting private ground. They've leased ground. They own ground. 
they're hunting with an mm-hmm. outfitter, they're going into you know wildlife management. You don't know, so it'd be interesting to just not even you don't have to know their names. Hell, you could just even if you just knew their zip code to be able to have some kind of knowledge of of who all is coming here and consuming and how they're consuming it may yeah. allow us to regulate better. It may allow us to. Um, Manage do all better. kinds of things different. Manage better, which is, the, yeah. I mean, that's what regulation is. And, and regulation is kind of a a little bit of a nasty word to a degree because it sounds like, man, the you know, the government's clamping down on me. And but what in the end you have to, to be able to manage this resource, you got to regulate it. Um, we've already tried um, not regulating this sport. We almost wiped the mallard duck off the planet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Um, uh, and we've done, we've done the same with other species. You can look at buffaloes and, and you can talk about all kinds of things that have uh, been, been almost wiped off the planet, but it'd be nice to, to, the more data we can, we can accumulate. I think the better it help just no different than transmitter ducks and, and better statistics. Cause I thought it was really interesting that log, um, yeah, that, that, you know, you have because you don't know that person when they go back and they do their hip survey, their original hip survey. You, I mean, are they feeling that? Are they giving you a number for what they shot in Alabama or Georgia or wherever they came from? Or is they they talking about their Arkansas ducks, right? Or their, or their experience. So, I mean, just mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's way more complex, and and I'm not trying to play. Uh, Game and Fish Commissioner, you know, Mr. Regulation, but I just think it it would be helpful for us to know more about who is hunting at, at some level uh, versus just what's on a license because you really don't know much about them other than where, maybe where they came from um, and maybe how many times a year they come to the state. Maybe. Yeah, it, it'd be good data to have. And I, I think you're really touching on something there with that law now. I'll be honest, that's not something I would want to have to keep up with, but would be willing to do so, right. obviously. But right. I mean, it's that's that's good data to have. That's going to that is better information than the hip survey. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't see much downside to it other than the cost of it. So for anyone that's listening, it's like, oh, man, this guy's really throwing stones. Like, look, it's going to cost me money, too, in the you know, right. scenario that I laid out there. Like, it's not right. free for me either. But I. I think it, I think it needs to be done. I, I think it's, it's unfortunate kind of where we've allowed ourselves to get um, much the same as the the boat races and, you know, whole runner and all the stuff that's happened on public, you know, there's the only thing we can really reform on, on the private side is outfitters and there's literally no regulation on it. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Well, and I don't think anything we're we're talking about, uh, even in a dream scenario, it would be, you know, this out of touch dollar amount to to be, uh, you know, an outfitter or you know, guy license. Would it be enough to be painful enough to to keep the fringe out? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's why not everybody goes to med school. <laughs> you know, all these other things that cost right. a bunch yeah. of money. Um, you know, it's not for everybody. Um, and if you can't afford it, then maybe you don't don't need to be doing it. But it keeps that maybe keeps some of that. And, and not that there's not outlaws out there with some walking around money that could afford to pay any of these fees and licenses and whatever, whatever else. Because, I mean, outlaws are just outlaws um, and, and guys that are, you know, not doing right. But 
you know, I think if you tied, I, I really like your idea of tying that fee, right? You know, if you're in, and, and I don't know, there's a lot of hoops the game of fish has to jump through to raise fees. They just can't just whip one out and go, okay, that's what we're doing, especially for residents. Um, mm-hmm. it, there are some, some, some serious hoops that involve legislature and everything else to, to change resident fees. Now I think they have more freedom for non-resident fees. Um, but we should be more like Missouri in that regard the, the, we should be able to change license fees without all the legislative hoops we have to jump through, but that's a whole yeah. other episode. Oh, for sure. For sure. But, uh, you know, if you take that, that, that incremental raising of fees to, you know, if you really want to be an outfitter, this is what it, this is what you need to, you need to pay to be that uh, other, other than paying $25 and then making, you know, anywhere from 250 to $500 right. a head for a hunt. Well, it's it's normal in any other business. You have to have a business license. You have to go to school. I mean, you, you can't be a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer for yeah. free. I yeah. mean, there's some level of accreditation there. I mean, it's just it just is. Um, so this is I'll tell this story again. We won't name names, but we're talking about outfitters here and, and people doing wrong. So, you know, this story, you know, about the outfitter that was near us last year uh, that was broadcasting seed the day before early spec season um get caught doing it that afternoon at that point no infraction had been made you know and i think they blurted out the comment well we had to put something out farmer didn't leave anything for us well clearly they're baiting right yeah so at that point and and i'll credit to the game and fish for this and the the enforcement guys look they don't want to write tickets they want to prevent violations right and that's what they did they they got to it before it happened. No violations were made. Nobody, you know, that as an outfitter, that's a that's a two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine. Just so everyone knows what these guys were looking at, up to two hundred fifty. Yeah. This is a very serious infraction. So, you know, like I said, they there was no infraction. They didn't hunt over it, so they shut it down. Zone of influence. I think they got to hunt next to it or near it, whatever. But is that the kind of outfitter you want to go with? I mean, and I, and I can tell you a couple of different brands that hunted with them that week following that had no idea what had gone on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, talk to a friend of ours who works for a specific other brand. And he and I've had this conversation like, man, could you imagine the backlash if it came out that so-and-so hunted over bait? Yeah. I mean, and, and and now I'm not saying that reform would fix all this, but let's give these guys the benefit of the doubt. Let, let's say maybe they didn't know what the law was. Then they shouldn't be an outfitter. I mean, if you don't, if you don't know that much, you shouldn't be in this business, but the continuing education, having to pass a test, having to have an actual license that, you, you know, there's some level of questioning that goes into it would have fixed that situation easily. And if it didn't, even though they didn't violate the fact that, all that happened should have been enough to have lost an outfitter license period. Yeah. And then, then you're out of business for the, at least for that year, you know, you're sending clients home cause you can't take them anymore. Now that's a wild example, but that can't be the only one that's ever happened in the state along the lines of abating, which is a, it's just a, a it's, it's a significant infraction. Yeah. As it should be. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, all of this would, and what it would do, it would, it would benefit the the reputable outfitters and the people that are 
you know, in it for the right reasons and doing things, uh, you know, the, the quote unquote right way. But, um, you know, you should also, I would think it, it would be a benefit too to have this list of outfitters published by, you know, like a, almost like a directory that the game and fish or, or whoever oversees it would, like in Colorado, they have their own office, office of outfitter registration, like I said. And they you can go on there and you can look somebody up and you can say, okay, the buyer's farm, case in short, is a he is a upstanding um one, he's an upstanding outfitter. Two, I don't see where he's ever had any infractions. And or three, or the opposite of that is I don't see this guy on this list, but he says he'll take $350 from me and for and for uh, each of my buddies to take us hunting. Um, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't do that because the dude is not, <laughs> he's yeah. not a, he's not a real outfitter. Um, right. And that may help, you know, these people that are trying to research it because you, you see a lot of people in it, in it. And I realize social media has its benefits and, and you, you can get connected with someone that's legitimate and you can, um, you know, find, you know, it's another level of advertising, I guess, is what I should say. Cause just cause you, you advertise in the back of a magazine doesn't make you legit either. Although if you can afford a, a, an ad in the back of one of the, like the national magazines, you're probably doing, doing things on, on the up and up, not always, but probably a significantly higher percentage than what you would find posting in a group chat uh, deal (laughs) on Facebook with the, with the infamous lines of only a few dates available. If you see somebody that's posting <laughs> only a few dates available starting in July and they're still posting them now in uh, almost October, that, that might be a red flag. Um, but uh, I think a, a directory, a directory would help uh, people to be able to kind of see, um, you know, what they're, who and what they're dealing with um, mm-hmm. and maybe improve their experience. Cause as much as people like to complain about out-of-staters and, and th- there's a lot of in-state people that, that book uh, guided hunts too. Um, a lot of people do it for corporate outings now, yep. um, but they're, but the corporate outing guys are not going to got, not going to find a group on Facebook to go hunt with. No, uh, it's got correct. a different, different channel. And that's, that's kind of more of the, you know, cause some of the clientele that you deal with and, and and you have these consistent repeat customers and, and, and all that, that, I mean, there's several guide services that everybody knows by name on the Grand Prairie that you don't, they're booked, forget it. They advertise and they have a website and they have, uh, you know, an Instagram page, but you're on a, you can get on a waiting list, but that waiting list might be 50 people deep. Right. Um, and it might take a long time before they call you and go, Hey, we have an opening. Um, and and there's others that are that are doing everything right, and they're hustling every year to fill fill their slot. So you know, there's there, people want to, you know, some some out, you know, some people that book outfitters like to experience something different. Some of them like the consistency of they know the guides, they know what kind of the hunting's going to be, the food's going to be, the accommodations are going to be, and so they, that's it. Boom, book us again for next year, same time spot. Mm-hmm. But you got others that want to experience different parts of the state, different types of hunting, all that. So you know, spots come open and close and you know, it's kind of a revolving door, so to speak. That doesn't make you a bad outfitter. Um, that's not what I'm saying by that. But, um, you know, I think we can really improve people's experience because we, 
we as a state need that tourism dollar because uh, you could slot it into that that piece. That's a that's a big piece for Arkansas. There's only you know there's a handful of things people come to Arkansas for. That's that's one of them. Um, and uh, and then you also have that ability to uh, to keep our you know reputation alive, so to speak, and and really help some of these smaller towns that that rely on duck season to make make their dollar for the for the year in some cases yeah i mean i think you summed it up there you know we can improve the experience of people coming to the state and then we can roll that revenue into access for other hunters and i think that's a that's a win-win and it's something that as an individual that this would you know potentially cost money to i'm on board with that i'm I'm happy to to help generate a better experience for the consumers in the state and provide more access for other people. Cause at the end of the day, we, we need both. I mean, we need, we need hunters. We need the revenue from hunters. If, if this resource is going to be well taken care of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe we can get um, to that point. I don't know. I don't know where, you know, what yeah. it takes to, to even get it on the table to discuss. And I, and I know that, you know, I know the game and fish has looked at out of state because they just raised it. They just raised the non-resident guide fee. It right. was it was not five hundred. That might even be last year they raised it for last season. They did raise it, it last been. year, and I think they yeah. wanted maybe they wanted to go to five hundred, but didn't. But they did no, this I think year, right? I thought it. Yeah, I don't remember. But I th- but I think it's five. But I think they wanted to go even more. That was on the table yeah. originally because I because I would get some some uh, messages and texts from guides mm-hmm. I know and guys that come in here in, uh, from out of state to hunt uh, or to guide and were really worried that it was going to bump up to I think it might have been 2500 maybe been the original was the original yeah I uh, think you're right price yeah. to pay but they they backed off that and and it's 500 but but uh but yeah, yeah. so that's just something else well, to put on the table yeah who knows we might not have done anything else but ruffle some feathers <laughs> yeah 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 but if 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 any of that we talked about hurt your feelings you're probably one of the guys that, that people need to <laughs> look out guilty. for <laughs> people need to look out yeah. for you um so uh, but yeah i mean if somebody's got you know if we're if you think we're dead wrong on something or you got a different take or something i mean don't hesitate to reach out we're we're open and accessible uh to that especially um you know given this this role we play on the the game and fish advisory councils that that are supposed to be representing what the public is is thinking and seeing and reading and hearing. Yeah. So uh yeah. I mean, we're supposed I mean, to be that conduit. That's right. Yeah. So if you're if you're listening to this, chances are we've run at least a promo or two about it on Instagram. So go find those posts, make comments, let us know what you think, give us your ideas. Um we'd love to talk about it. I and mean, we ought to do that at some point. I'd love to have like a QA episode where we just respond to questions from people that are listening to it i mean that'd be fun yeah oh yeah for sure for sure yeah. uh i didn't really prepare for it but you want to do a little uh either or uh yeah sure 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 all right we'll come up with something here the standard sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors from the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. 
I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, Light Boots are guaranteed game-changers. Now available in youth sizes. Uh, I, okay, I'll do a fun one off the top of my head, just because um, uh, it's not even duck hunting related. But, uh, you know, obviously, if you've listened to earlier episodes, you know that we did not go to the same school. So we have different allegiances fan-wise. Oh, gosh. <laughs> now, this question for me is an easy one just because of my background. But are you, are you a bigger Mississippi State football fan or a bigger Mississippi State baseball fan? Um, all, um, yeah. we're definitely a baseball <laughs> school. So yeah. I, I, my, uh, I get hurt more by the football team than I do. I don't know. The baseball teams hurt me pretty bad the last two years, but yeah, I went to more football games than baseball games. Uh, but now I will say that the left field lounge is a, there's few other places in college sports, college baseball that will equal that experience. It's really cool. But, uh, I would say football first. Yeah. It's easier to consume on TV. Like it's, it's, I watch baseball on TV, but it's not. You, you really want to go to a baseball game. Yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, Bomb Stadium in Fayetteville and, and Duty Noble are two very unique experiences that, mm-hmm. that uh, you know, you, you're playing in front of a packed house even when you're playing a, a no-name directional school. So, um, but yeah, football, you know, I lean more towards baseball just because of my background. But, but you know, I love Razorback football. I probably love Razorback basketball more than I love Razorback football. Um, but that's just me. Yeah, that's always interesting. The number of of basketball fans in the state. Like I don't, short of Kentucky, you know, I don't think a lot of other SEC schools kind of have that following of their basketball no. program quite like Arkansas does. No, not at all. And that's what makes it so much better now that Musselman has us back to relevant and beyond because we had mm-hmm. way too long a period where we weren't, and that was hugely disappointing. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of something I hadn't. Okay. So we had this conversation the other day or it happened in our comments. This guy was, was pretty adamant about the lead ban. So would you, would you prefer to being able to, would you prefer to go back to be able to able to shoot lead shot or pay, you know, six plus dollars around for tungsten? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'd be, uh, extremely I mean, knowing, knowing everything we know about lead currently, that's right not not go back to the ignorance you know when we just didn't know but in today's right. world what, what would you prefer yeah i think i'd be totally hypocritical to say i'd want to go back to lead and be a guy that advocates for what's best for the resource because <laughs> yeah. lead is not it <laughs> uh, glad you chose I, that answer <laughs> yeah that would have been like god this guy's a clown he he talks out of both sides of his mouth. What a hypocrite! <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would be super selective in my shots if I was shooting six dollar pop shells. But uh, yeah. you know, knowing 
knowing the damage that lead can do, I would definitely suck it up if that's uh that's if that was the case. But uh, yeah, going back to lead, that's a that's a that's a non-starter uh, for me because it's uh doing way more damage than good. And yeah. and I, you know, I think I think too that guy's point was was decent because you, you sent me some of sure. that. But uh, but you know, at the same time, you can kill ducks with plain crappy steel shells if you take the right shot. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm totally convinced of that. Uh, now, I get it. Not everybody is presented with the same hunting situations that maybe you, me, or or, or other people out there, and they got to they got to take what they can get. And and um, you know, we have the we have the good fortune of being able to maybe be picky on what shots we take. And and some of those people may be a little more desperate to put a, put a couple of ducks in the bag, so they take some some shots you or I maybe wouldn't take or, or right. some other people, but you know, if you take the right shots, shots with steel, you could, you can make it happen. It's a, uh, it's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's totally doable. Well, there, and then there's, you know, there's no doubt that the crippling rate has increased, you know, after the lead ban. I, I don't think you can really, I don't think you can question that. There's no data to back that up other than what you see with your own two eyes. But that was one of the things that he asked me in those comments was about, you know, lead poisoning and, if you didn't see it, then maybe you thought it was a myth, but I, I saw it. I mean, I remember one particular instance riding around with my father when I was young, because I was young, you know, like I remember lead shot. I remember the band, but I was young, but it was a, this was a period of, I don't know, over a week or two. Like we drive by a certain spot in this field and we kind of see, you know, a Mallard Drake, let's go with, let's call it the same Mallard Drake. Cause it was there every day. And you over the period of a week or so watched the body condition of this bird you know, maybe the first day it got up and flew a hundred yards and lit. And then after five days, it's flying 50 yards. And by week two, it's just letting you drive by it. And then yeah. the next day it's laying there dead. And it just, the pressure of you driving by it. And it was, I mean, it was sad to watch. Now, you know, with steel shot, we get crippled birds that didn't get consumed by coyotes, raptors, you know, you name it, that happens too. But I'll say this, we've got a, a tailwater recovery system that runs through our farm. And one day after season, uh, some of our guides and my father went with them. They put a boat in the end of the system and, and went down, you know, both sides of the bank because there were so many dead ducks and geese that had gotten into that creek and, and kind of got up under the grass, up along the edge of it and succumbed right there. And I think when they went up and down both sides of it, this is a, it's maybe three quarter of a mile long, you know, so a mile and a half of bank there. I think they picked up six bands. So oh, you wow. tell me how many birds died that year for them to find six bands in that yeah. stretch. So yeah. it was real. Now, maybe more so for us because we roost a lot of birds. So we were getting a lot of, you know, lead poisoning from surrounding areas. But, I mean, it was a real thing. And I remember it. And it was not pleasant to see. Um, no, it's now, painful. It is. It is. And, and, and still is, you know, we see it a lot with snow geese, I guess, because, you know, we have this big message of, oh, they're killing the tundra, shoot all of them. People are really happy to shoot them at a hundred yards high. Um, but we see a lot of crippled snow geese, you know, broke wing. Mm -hmm. And it's still sad to watch that. Cause you know, like they'll get here on our pond and they'll swim around, but you know, eventually coyote or eagle, something's going to get them. And maybe yep. that's more humane than lead poisoning, but there's still a crippling rate, but I, I just, I can't see the argument of going back to lead, but anyway, I'll get off my high horse there. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Just take the right shot. You can, you can kill them with, <laughs> with, uh, 
with the bottom barrel stuff and that's right. You know, you just gotta, you gotta have that discipline, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Know your limits. Maybe, you know, in, in, I mean, not to go off on some wild tangent, but you know, maybe pattern your shotgun, knowing what it can <laughs> and can't do, knowing what your choke can and can't do. Um, all those things that, that's uh, wild. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's not just the shot shell. There's a lot of things that go into it that you can, you can maybe do, but, uh, mm-hmm. all right, here's, here's another one. Uh, you had, you a J frame guy or, 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 a, or a cut down guy? Uh, a little bit of both. I've kind of moved over to, to cut downs here more lately. Um, it's funny. My grandfather blew Olds forever, which he never, never turned them around and, and did it the trendy way. He just, you know, blew them yeah. how they were designed. But, uh, I remember we used to give him a lot of grief about it because they were so loud and raspy and now it's, completely in vogue to to use them but i they've come a long way um you can do a lot with them they are very versatile so typically over the last four to five years i've, I've used a cut down more than anything else yeah yeah well i grew up you know I, I mentioned earlier i grew up hunting there at crockett's bluff on the white river and all of this is in the okay keep in mind this is in the late 70s up until the early 90s so but from day one those guys all blew the ults turned around backwards mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was that was a thing long before it became as as vogue as it is now, and it <laughs> became the the way for so many cut down call makers to produce an exact replica of the D two uh, design wise. <laughs> exact, it's like <laughs> crazy, but yeah. um, but yeah, I've I think I think you're right. Cut downs now are, are so much more versatile than they were. In fact, you know, I have a hard time with a cut down, or I had a hard time with a cut down on a with a you know the fourteen mil reed, and so I have a ten mil, and it makes it much better for me personally. So, um, uh, but I've not blown one in a season before. But I'm I think I've I've got one. I've got one of Jimbo's calls actually that uh, that I'm going to experiment with some. So. We'll see how it goes, yeah. but I could definitely feel a lot better about it with that 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 thinner read in there. It reacts more like a J frame call. Right. You can do a lot with them. I mean, you can really get you can get a good amount of volume on certain calls, certain notes that uh you know, you don't get that high end squeal, doesn't doesn't give away at the top like that. So they're I think they're more versatile than they probably were maybe even in the seventies. But oh for sure. For sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of a, a good. Would you rather style of hunt? Would you rather be able to wear hip boots or waders? <laughs> uh, probably waders. The only time I really wear hip boots is goose hunting. Um, yeah. And, and maybe that's kind sheep. of a loaded question for, from our area, but seemed like for, uh, you know, there was a period where people wore hip boots. Oh, yeah. No, oh, yeah. Common. You don't see a lot anymore. That's, that's kind of why I asked. So. No. And what's <laughs> what's crazy about it, about that, if you really think about it, what's crazy about that is they were a lot less technologically advanced about managing water level back then. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they but they were able right. to somehow always hunt in hip boots because uh, yeah. you look at a lot of pictures from like the 50s and 60s oh yeah nobody's i mean very few pictures are with waders on now a lot a mm-hmm. lot of pictures with hip boots on so yeah. i don't know if they were hunting stuff that naturally you know mother nature handled water levels and and uh you know has man come in and 
jacked all that up, what, which, you know, in some ways, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Some of our water control structures and everything aren't, aren't, uh, as good, you know, as what they should be. So hence we're tearing them out and trying to rebuild, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays, especially, especially with, you know, the waiters I wear, which you can tell by who sponsors us, um, you know, Sitka, I don't mind hunting in waders at all. Now the, the old no. days, it kind of sucked. And even neoprene kind of sucked. It was better, but uh, it was, you know, it was bulky and yeah, had some hot, too. trapped, trapped all that air in there. So uh, what putting on a pair, pair of modern day waders is not that big a deal, but, uh, mm-hmm. but I thought I have some Dan's hip boots that I wear, uh, goose hunting here and there, but mostly I'll wear my Sitka bibs and some knee boots, uh, yeah. on the geese, even when there's, you know, sheet water out there, which is probably my favorite way to hunt them uh, over some skinny water. Yeah. Good and good and muddy and nasty. That's right. Yeah. But no, it was, it was a popular thing. I mean, I grew up wearing hip boots, but I, I wouldn't, I don't know that I want to go back. Waders are so comfortable now compared to what they were. No, night and day. Obviously everybody, I mean, everybody knows that. <laughs> uh, I, I can't believe when I see some, even some pictures nowadays, of people that, have neoprene on i'm like have you tried <laughs> i mean you don't have to spend a thousand bucks either there i mean there's a lot of brands that make them for the same price you're gonna pay for neoprene i'm like i want to try some of these on it's game changer i remember when the yeah. bandits came out man it was a it's like what in the world how oh, did we not no. think of this before i think i sat i put them on and sat in my kitchen for like an hour one night i was like these are so comfortable this is unbelievable I- yeah. And then eventually found things to complain about with them. But uh, true <laughs> of anything, you know, we just, everything gets better. And we, we're like, man, how did I ever wear neoprene? But when you first got them, you thought they were. Oh, yeah. That was really a big yeah. step from Hodgman. Red or, balls and Hodgman. Yeah, red ball. <laughs> yep. Converse. That was my first pair. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Um, yeah. Well, let's wrap this one up. I think we've we've covered it. Um Thank you all for for listening today. Like I said earlier, please leave us a message. Let us know what you want to talk about. Give us your thoughts. Uh, you can find us online at thestandardsportsman.com, on Instagram or Facebook at The Standard Sportsman, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks.